The following program is for informational and educational purposes only. This program does not replace medical, mental health, or psychological diagnosis and treatment prescribed by your personal physician, psychologist, therapist, or other health care provider. Please consult your provider for diagnosis and care before beginning or changing any program or idea discussed. Welcome to Psych Up Live with your host, Dr. Suzanne Phillips. This is the show that brings you a psychological perspective on common and current life issues. Here is Dr. Suzanne Phillips. Welcome, I'm Suzanne Phillips. Thanks for joining me again on Psych Up Live. The amount of stress worldwide is at an all-time high as the coronavirus spreads. Self-care and understanding alternative ways of reducing stress and easing chronic pain are very important. We are fortunate to have as our guest today freelance journalist and author Melanie Warner, the author of the fascinating new book, The Magic Feather Effect, The Science of Alternative Medicine and the Surprising Power of Belief. It is estimated in any given year that in the U.S., 19 million people see a chiropractor, 3 million do acupuncture, 3 million practice exercises like Tai Chi, and at least 24 million do meditation or breathing exercises to relieve stress, chronic pain, and more. What makes them effective? Is it wishful thinking? Placebo effect? Is there something important we need to learn about our own ability to heal? Melanie Warner is coming to us all the way from Honolulu today. She's a freelance writer for various publications, including the New York Times and Fast Company. She has spent the past 15 years writing about business, first as a writer at Fortune magazine, where, among other things, she wrote about the dot-com boom in Silicon Valley. She was also a staff reporter for the New York Times covering the food industry. In addition to the magic feather effect, her other important book is Pandora's Lunchbox. Melanie Warner, it is my privilege to welcome you to Psych Up Live. Hi, Suzanne. Nice to be with you. Um, Melanie, let's start with what we're facing here in terms of this pandemic. Can alternative medicines actually help us regulate stress? Can they help us boost our immune system? Yeah, stress is a, it's a really important uh, factor these days, isn't it? So many people are are worried about what's going to happen in the next couple of months. People are worried about getting sick. They know people who are sick. And there's, there's that, that stress can actually have an effect on, on people's immune systems. Um, when I was writing the book, I um, talked to a lot of researchers who, who have studied stress and who understand that there's a really intimate link between stress and a lot of areas of our body, but particularly our immune systems. And when we're in a state of stress, especially chronic stress that goes on for days, weeks, even months, that's where you start to see this really negative effect on your body. Um, and it actually can lower your immune responses, which is the exact opposite thing that we want to all be doing right now. We all want to have strong immune. Mm-hmm. So one of the things you say is in one of your beginning chapters is the, the Zen response that people try to achieve by Tai Chi or mindful meditation can possibly turn this around. Is that right? Yeah, so there are lots of different things that, that people can do and some people are doing to reduce stress. I, I talk in the book about Tai Chi because there's been some 
really interesting and promising research on um, how Tai Chi can, can reduce stress. Um, but there are other, meditation is another, another good example of that. There's been good research on that as well, the way in which it tones down the body's stress response. I, I mean, and this makes sense. These are very calming um, approaches. Or my, it grounds you in the present moment, focuses on your breath. Tai Chi focuses on movement in your body. Um, it takes your mind away from all the things that you may be worried about. It just helps train the mind to tone down that, that chatter um, and, uh, and find, like a, find, a, find a calming place. So, yeah, there's been really interesting research on those two particular things, but there, I think anything that people do to reduce stress, exercise is, is another good one, just even getting out for a walk or um, to go for a run. Um, can have a huge impact on our health right now, just on a day-to-day basis, help keep us sane and help keep our immune systems strong. And it's a really interesting link, if you, the, the link between stress and the immune system. It all relates back to the fight-or-flight response, which a lot of people, I'm sure our, your listeners are familiar with. Um, it goes back... Um, Many, many years, the, the human body evolved very slowly. So if you think about the fight-or-flight response, back when we were fighting off daily, almost probably daily threats, whether it was wild animals or invading tribes, we had to, our body had to find a way to survive. And in order to do that, we had to be able to marshal our, our bodily responses um, to run and get away. So there are all kinds of changes that need to happen in our body to make that possible. Blood has to flow. Your, first of all, your heart needs to pump faster. Blood pressure increases. The blood gets pushed out to your extremities, your arms and your legs. Um, there's more oxygen going to your brain so you can focus more um, in the moment um, more easily. And what it doesn't, but what we don't need when we're fleeing uh, whether a wild animal or somebody chasing us, is our immune systems. That's not a time for our immune systems to be engaged. So the body, ha- so, so, and that's, that's a system that works great when you have a momentary stress response that you need to respond to. But what happens when that stress is always turned on and you're experiencing maybe not the panic levels of stress but the low levels of stress? You have that same response in your body. Your immune system gets, gets tamped down because it's not pro- your body is not programmed to need an immune response in relation to stress. So that's, that's the really interesting, interesting link between um, stress, stress and the immune system. One thing that you said that I don't think I would have known to, to think about is you said it's not that it cures an existing illness, but it cares for you. Mm. So you gave the example of fatigue and side effects in a breast cancer survivor. And it's not that it will necessarily cure the cancer, but by reducing the chronic stress, it actually has shown results in terms of reducing insomnia, depression, the fatigue I mentioned. So that's a very important part of turning down this inflammatory activity. Yeah, I mean, it's a really important distinction to make. Um, I don't, I'm certainly not arguing, and I don't think anyone else should be arguing, that alternative medicine or any kind of stress-reducing therapies um, can heal anyone of, 
of coronavirus if they, if they happen to, to get sick, right? That's a whole uh, disease process that, that happens in, in the body. But it, stress plays a huge role in keeping us healthy, preventative medicine, um, helping us ward off um, threats to our body, whether it's coronavirus or um, chronic inflammation or uh, mm. lots of other things. Um, so, and so, it, and, and then when people do have chronic diseases, like you mentioned, cancer or um, heart disease, it's not that, it isn't, this is all according to the research, um, as I looked at it and talked to lots of experts, um, just in terms of the data that we have on it so far, it's not going to, if you're doing Tai Chi every day, if you're doing meditation, um, or even if you're doing something like acupuncture, it's not going to re- reverse your your cancer, your, uh, you know, your tumors, um, it's, and it's not going to reverse heart disease, but what it is going to do is help you manage the symptoms of those and change the way you experience that disease on a day-to-day basis, which really should not be minimized. Sometimes I think it is a little bit minimized by um, the medical industry and, and, and by doctors. But if you can change your, for instance, your, your insomnia that you have, as a result of a chronic disease, if you can manage your pain, if you can turn down um, the amount of pain you feel on a daily basis, whether it's coming from diabetes or cancer treatments, side effects, um, that can make a huge, huge difference um, in, in how you experience the, the disease. And it may even eventually affect the progression of some diseases, but it, it's, it's, there's not a ton of research on that yet, so... Well, one thing you mentioned later on in the book that maybe really fits here is that our experience of pain is really very much our sense of being in danger. And so if you feel that these techniques are really taking you to a good place, the chance of you being less frightened, Melanie, is very valuable in terms of probably reducing pain and being able to sleep and feeling less panicked. Yeah, exactly. Pain is our harm alarm, um, is what one researcher calls it. It's, it's our way, it's one of our body's ways of keeping us safe and keeping us out of danger. Like if you're putting your hand on something hot, it helps your body not burn itself. It's why you, why you pull away. Um, and so that's something that, uh, that when people have chronic pain, there's a lot of interesting scientific research going on in the field of chronic pain right now because so many people are suffering from it. It's such a huge, huge problem. And obviously, people know we have the opioid crisis that's fueled um, in part by the large numbers of people that have been taking um, prescription opioids for, um, for chronic pain. And so there's a lot of interesting research showing that Pain is not always what we think it is. It's not always how we feel in our, in our how we think uh, our body experiences it. Like we feel like my, my knee hurts or my back hurts, I have back problems. Um, and we think that our body, our body is in danger. There must be something wrong. And that's not always the case in, in chronic pain. Certainly if you injure yourself, you know, there, there could be something wrong and that's why your body sends those signals. But when people are have had pain that lasts for more than three months, which is how um, doctors define chronic pain. Um, a lot of times it's, it's because 
there's something that's going on in, in, in our nervous system, our spinal cord and our brain that's, um, that's the, the harm system has gone a little bit haywire and our body is reacting, overly reacting. Our brain is overly reacting to the signals that are coming up from our body. So, so people don't think of pain as happening in the brain, but it's a subjective sensation that's absolutely happening in our brain and our brain decides not always, not consciously, of course, but our brain decides whether to produce pain or whether to not. So some researchers I talked to are thinking about chronic pain now as a learned response. Like our brain is, has learned to be in pain. The longer we're in pain, the more pain our brain produces. So it's a really interesting question, scientifically and practically, how you change that, how you get your brain to unlearn pain and to change that cycle of, of chronic pain. And there's a lot of research being done. And I think that there's, that's a, one of the reasons why um, when people do studies on alternative medicine, um, whether it's acupuncture, chiropractic, even Tai Chi, that we, and, and meditation, I should mention too, that's where you see the biggest effect is the effect um, on pain and the way it can tone down people's pain. One of the most uh, dramatic examples you give, and, and I think one of your researchers says if you didn't have a brain, you wouldn't have pain, in terms of expectation and feeling you're in danger is the story of the young man who falls off the roof and the um, nail goes right through his boot and they they move him to a hospital and you can't even touch him without him screaming in pain, so they give him all the painkillers and... Then they take the boot off, and the nail has never touched yeah. his foot. But the expectation yeah. of being in that kind of danger really turned on the pain response. Yeah, exactly. That's an extreme example, and it, but it's a great story, and I, I told my kids that, and they, they love that story. It's a guy with yes. a boot who was screaming in pain. Yeah. Um, but there have been studies done where they they hook people up. They say, we're going to do an experiment with you. We're going to attach electrodes to your head. Uh, it's going to create an unpleasant sensation. You know, we have this dial. We're going to turn up the dial on it, but it's going to be temporary and you're going to be okay. And they put them in this room and for, for the, for some, for the people, for about 50% of people, they never, the, the, um, the machine is not on. This like scary electrode machine is never on. And the people experience pain, like they wince in pain, you know, they are waiting for it to be over, and they wince more the higher up on the, the, the knob, um, the, you know, the pain, the fake pain seems to go. So it's absolutely something that you can, you can create the sensation of pain based on expectations. Mm. Which is why a feeling of safety, we would hope, would reduce pain as opposed to a feeling of danger. Well, um, even though we'll start it here and then pick it up on the other side. So let's go to a, one of the statements you make, which I thought was fascinating, is acupuncture can be effective, Melanie, but you say, but not for the reasons your acupuncturist tells you. So maybe tell us a little bit about that, maybe the toothpick experiment and how what we can understand about um, what makes acupuncture work. Yeah, well, acupuncturists, if, if anyone's gone to an acupuncturist, maybe their acupuncturist has talked about uh, chi moving, moving, through, moving through the body, 
along different meridian lines. There's liver meridian, heart meridian, and it's all a very, very complicated, um, intricate system. It's all linked together. Um, and so, and, and then there's specific acupuncture points on the, on the body that acupuncturists are supposed to put the needles into. They don't just do it randomly. There's really specific points. There's a lot of them in the body. And so, so researchers, when they wanted to look at acupuncture, because there's, there's been lots of anecdotal evidence, you know, for decades that people have gone to acupuncturists and it's, it's helped with different conditions, a lot of it chronic, chronic pain related. Um, and so, so researchers wanted to, to look at this specifically and say, well, you know, let's, let's do a rigorous study and see whether, A, it's true that acupuncture can help people with, with chronic pain or with symptoms of pain that come from something else. Um, and then let's see maybe how it's working. You know, is it really, does it really matter where you put the needles on the body and what's, what's really the, the mechanism here um, for, for why it works? So when, so when, they, when they did studies, one of, one of the first ones, really kind of large-scale studies that was rigorous, was done in, in Washington State by a researcher there. Um, he actually had the idea to, to take toothpicks. And instead of putting those toothpicks in all the correct spots, first of all, the toothpicks obviously never went into the skin, so they just would poke, um, they poke the skin, but and people were blindfolded, so they didn't, they couldn't see that that it was actually toothpicks. So, hang, hang on one and he minute. tested Melanie. it out. Melanie, wait, yeah. hang on one minute. We're going to make this a cliffhanger. We're going to need to take a break, but when we come back, um, our listeners are going to hear of maybe the three groups and the toothpick group, and actually what happens. You've been listening to Psych Up Live. We're here with Melanie Warner. She's a Freelance journalist and her new and important book is The Magic Feather Effect, The Science of Alternative Medicine and the Surprising Power of Belief. Stay with us. You'll be surprised and you'll be informed. We'll be right back. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com Every day, we're surrounded by technical buzzwords and jargon that can go way over our heads. Now, there's a show that brings it all back down to earth. Tune in for today, Tomorrow's Technologies, with host Jose Negron. We'll not only explain the new technologies that are shaping our world, we'll give you the benefits and backstory of these technologies. Listen for T3 with Jose Negron, live every Tuesday at noon Eastern Time and 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. There are many innocent people who were found guilty of crimes that they did not commit. Join criminal defense investigator Jeff Stein for Is There Really Truth and Justice for All? Each show, we'll discuss the problem, and it is a problem. The fact that because of incompetent investigations and a poor judicial system, anybody can become a victim. Can we fix this? Tune in to find out. You can listen Wednesdays at 11 a.m. Eastern Time and 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. 
ever experience the joy of living, not just aspects of your life, but the true joy of life itself. Barry Shore has. You could call him an ambassador of joy. From a successful entrepreneur to becoming a quadriplegic due to a rare disease to his ongoing recovery through swimming and physical rehabilitation. Barry now presents his gifts to others as host of The Joy of Living. All you need to do is tune in. Listen live every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. We're on Alexa Smart Speakers and Connected Devices. Hey, Alexa. Play Being Here Podcasts on Apple Podcasts. Try it now. You are listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now, back to Psych Up Live. Welcome back to Psych Up Live. We're speaking with Melanie Warner. She's the author of The Magic Feather Effect. And she had mentioned, and I I used it in the other section, so I'm going to repeat it here, acupuncture can be effective, but maybe not for the reasons you think. And uh, Melanie, you, you were just beginning to tell us about an experiment that sort of opens up the discussion about why acupuncture works. Yeah, so these researchers in, in Washington State did a big study on acupuncture. This is in the uh, 1990. And they divided everyone into three groups. And we were just talking about the toothpick group. So one group got the real acupuncture that an acupuncturist would do with all the meridian lines and, and the point the needles going into the body in the right points. The second group got the, the toothpicks, which was just a poke of a toothpick. They were blindfolded, so they didn't realize it was toothpicks. Just a poke in the body, not in actual acupuncture points, just a little bit off the acupuncture points, and obviously the toothpick didn't go into um, into the body or pierce the skin. And then the third group was the control groups, the, the no treatment group. So those were people that were just on the waiting list. And what they found, and these were people who had chronic back pain, um, what they found was that the people who got the real acupuncture and the people who the toothpick group, both of those groups had relief from their pain, significant relief from their pain. And, but there was no difference between the, between the groups. And they, got more, they had more pain relief than just the people that were in the no treatment group. Because even if you're not getting treated, sometimes people's pain gets a little bit better just because of the waxing and waning of, of symptoms. So what that suggests is, yes, acupuncture can be effective for uh, pain, for back pain, but... It's not working because of all because of where you put the needles, or even that you're putting the needles into the body. It's working because of something else, some other mechanism, and then that something else gets us to a discussion about the placebo effect. And I just want to stop you for the 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 title of Melanie's book. Remember, is the magic feather effect. So, as a preface to placebo, that references from where, Melanie? Oh, it's a reference to to the story of Dumbo, and um, if people remember that story, the elephant with the big ears who um, didn't believe he could he could fly until his his friend Timothy the um, the crow 
gave him a feather and told him it was a magic feather and the, the feather would make him fly. And lo and behold, when he had the feather, he took off with his flapping ears and, and, and flew because simply because he could fly all along. He just needed the feather, the belief um, to, uh, to make him believe he could do it. So do you so I thought think that was a that, good metaphor for, yes, the, great for the power of belief? Yeah. Yeah. So, so is this acupuncture about the power of belief, the placebo? It's, yeah, I don't know that that's the whole story, but it's a big, big part of, part of the story. Yeah, I mean, there is a huge amount of, of ritual. Um, that's very, we were talking about that earlier, about the way um, ac- acupuncturists view the body. And, um, you know, you go into a room and it's, it's, oftentimes it's dimly lit. You talk to your acupuncturist. You get the treatment. It's, it you might know, be different parts of your body. Um, the acupuncturist is touching parts of your body as they as they put the the needles in. So all of this this, this ritual incites a um, a belief about what's to happen. Your body, your brain is expecting certain things to happen. You expect relief. Maybe if you've gotten relief in the past, it makes you feel a, certain, a different way. You come out of your normal life and you go into this room with this person who you trust as a um, someone who's going to help you. And so those are all the things that researchers who are really studying the placebo effect now and, and taking it seriously, um, those are all the things that they, that they found that can incite the placebo effect and create the beliefs um, that can actually have a healing effect in, in the body for, for certain things like chronic pain. Right. Now, one of the things that, well, let, let's just go back for a minute to one of the things that you're suggesting that it's belief and more, that the belief actually in some ways trips our own brains to reduce and to release some of the, neuro, the same neurotransmitters that would be released if we actually had something that physically changed a pain situation. And you gave the example of um, uh, tooth extraction. And to me, this was so interesting. So I'm going to get a tooth extraction. And in certain situations, if I get morphine, I won't feel pain. And if I get an injection of a certain drug to block the morphine, the pain will come back. So I think in this experiment, um, I get what I think is morphine. And it's not. It's a placebo. But lo and behold, when the I get the second injection to block it, and I haven't had morphine, mm-hmm. the pain comes back. So tell yeah. us how to understand that. Exactly. Yeah, that was an experiment that they did that first unlocked the 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 um, the theory, which has now been is widely accepted that the placebo releases neurotransmitters um, and it releases the brain's own opioid-like chemicals that um, signal between neurons and it actually releases those in in a way, it's like your body's own own pharmacy. You have this own, the reason opioid prescription pills work is because our neurons have receptors for them in the brain. Well, why do our neurons have receptors for the membrane. Why would we have these? Because we actually can make them 
our, our own, our brain can make them, and these are things that can be released. We have a, a natural store of this. And, uh, and that's how the and researchers believe that that's how the placebo effect works. It releases those, um, the brain's own um, opioid-like molecules to help us tamp down pain. So what's which fascinating is, you know, which is, is fascinating. And they, yeah. Yeah. And they realized right. that because they used, in this dental experiment, they used a drug that blocks um, opioids, whether it's, uh, you know, morphine or whether it's our body's own internal neurotransmitters. And when they used this drug, naloxone, um, it, it, the, people's pain came back. It was blocking um, the placebo effect. It was blocking the neurotransmitters in, in our brain. And that was the first aha moment for, the, for a lot of people in the medical profession to say, oh, okay, the placebo effect isn't just some sort of artifact of, you know, so people believing that this is happening, but it's really not in experiments. You know, it's not some ephemeral thing. It's actually, there are actually mechanisms in the body. It's a real medical thing. It's just happening in the brain. So it's a little bit harder for us to study. So we're that really... That was the moment at which a lot of people started yeah. to take it seriously. Well, it really expands the placebo effect to being um, more than just a belief, but rather that that very belief becomes its own kind of um, uh, release valve for the neurotransmitters. Now, so it made me, so related to this, the other thing you talked about was something like um, dopamine being released even when we just anticipate something good happening. Um, I think I remember people would say if you were a cocaine addict, as soon as you walked into the room where you usually did it, you're already you're already feeling good. So a similar thing might be true that when you walk into that acupuncturist who you might trust and has become someone who's a healer for you, you're already releasing a certain amount of dopamine or feel good hormone. Uh huh. Yeah, dopamine is another one of the neurotransmitters that's, that's involved in the placebo effect. We, there hasn't been as much study on that, so, so researchers don't know as much about that particular neurotransmitter um, as they do the opioid-like ones. But, um, but yeah, that's thought to be, to be involved as well. Just the, it's, and that's part of the expectation system, system of the brain. Um, so it's, you know, our, our body responds based on, based on what we're expecting to happen. And it doesn't have to be, I think when, sometimes when people talk about belief and you look at something like acupuncture, well, you know, okay, I have to believe it's going to work. If I'm not a believer, it's not going to work. And that's not always the case. I mean, there's a lot of people when they, when they do studies, they don't just take the people who are, you know, convinced it's going to work. They actually get a, a, a large section. They don't, they don't want those people in studies. They get just the average person who's willing to volunteer for these studies. And so you don't have to conscious, it's not necessarily a conscious belief, like, oh, I think it's going to work. Um, there's a lot of unconscious mechanisms that, that happen. And it's, um, it's, it's just a lot more complex than, than just, I think it's going to happen and therefore it will. That is interesting, because in another section of the book, you talk about a group that's together for chronic pain, and they are um, talking to each other, and they're, they're, they're using one of the alternative medicines, um, it may be a meditation group, um, You p- please correct me, but what one of the things when you interview the people that they're saying is, um, just, it began to, I, got a, I had an opportunity to talk about 
how stressed I was in a very violent marriage, or I had an opportunity to talk about actually emotional pain, things that had never been said. Um, and when yeah. I read it, it, it made me think about how often as a psychologist, I've, I've believed that when the person doesn't have the words for it, their body screams. And you wonder how much yeah. of chronic pain is, you know, unconscious experiences of danger and not having the words for it that gets freed up once there's an opportunity to feel safe and to have a mechanism to start yeah. to trust. Yeah. Yeah, the, 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 the pain processing areas of the brain are, um, are, very, are very linked to, to fear, uh, to the to the fear areas of the brain, the amygdala, and and other areas. So, so researchers do think that there's there's a link between um, that kind of emotional stress, um, fear, and anxiety, and and chronic pain. And just when when they've done studies looking um, epidemiological studies, um, they see a people who have had childhood trauma have a higher incidence of, of chronic pain as adults. So there is, there is a risk factor, um, especially for, for trauma um, going back years. And that's some, that the thinking is that that somehow rewires the, the brain um, to be more attentive to, um, to fear and, and panic. And pain, of course, remember, is our, um, is our harm alarm. Great, great. Now, one so, thing so, that... Yeah. Go ahead, please. No, I, I was just going to mention that, do you agree with this? I think Benedetti is the person that you quote on saying, uh, all that we're saying is real, but placebo effects are temporary. They're more about care than cure of pain. Yeah, I mean, that's, I think, an open open question about how long-term placebo effects can be. I think it's it's a it's, it can be a really hard thing for for researchers to study, and that's um, Dr. Benedetti, who's one of the preeminent placebo researchers. He's at the University of Turin in, in Italy, and so he's really hewing to what what we've been able to demonstrate through through rigorous scientific study about the placebo effect. Um, and so I think I mean just in. So I can't point to research that shows this, but I think that, that that we'll probably find as more study into this is done that there can be a longer-lasting placebo effect. Um, that people who... But, you know, I think what also it's important to think about when, when we talk about the placebo effect, there's so much that that's wrapped up into that term, and some researchers I talk to don't even like to use use that term because it... it it sounds um, it sounds sort of narrow, and to some people it sounds pejorative because for a long time people have said, "Oh, it's just a placebo effect." Um, so I think that a lot of the things that go into the placebo effect, it's not just belief, but it's but it's also what researchers call the healing encounter, and so that's all the things that people experience when they're in a situation where they're trying to get. Um, they're, they're trying to get help, whether they're going to a doctor or whether they're going to an alternative practitioner. And there's a lot of things in that encounter. It's the ritual I was talking about earlier with acupuncture, but there are also rituals in our current medical system as well, like surgery is one of the things that has 
uh, one of the biggest placebo effects. And there's been so many fascinating studies that have been done on people that get sham surgery, like they do it, one of it's been done on the the knee. So some people Mm. in the the study get real knee surgery and the others just get an incision that makes it look like they they got the surgery. And the people, and this is where you see evidence, some evidence anyway, of a possible longer-term placebo effect. The people who get this, this fake knee surgery have just as much pain relief and sometimes more pain relief than the people that got the actual <laughs> knee surgery. I believe right? it. Which makes no sense. <laughs> Actually, I believe <laughs> it. Unless you understand the placebo effect. <laughs> and, and in some of these studies, and for some of these people, the pain per- lasts for, for years. Like, in, you know, it's been two, two, three years, they follow up with these patients. So, oh, my knee's, my knee's still doing great, even though they got no actual surgery. That's wild. So, um, well, yeah. Well, I, I actually think, I, I don't know if you called it the Hawthorne effect at some point, though. See, I think it's got to, it, it extends longer. Just like if I had chronic insomnia and pain, and then I didn't get sleep, and my immune system was suppressed, we go right down right down a slide to problems. But if, in fact, it helped yeah. me with sleep and my immune system and my uh, connection with people and what I did because I felt less pain, if I felt less pain in my knee, maybe I ran more, maybe I walked more. I, I'm with you in that uh-huh. I think it expands to a much longer effect than just a temporary one. Exactly, and then there are all those secondary effects that, that you mentioned, right? So maybe initially the placebo effect is those neurotransmitters that are, that are flooding your brain right after the surgery, and you, you, you wake up from the surgery, you recover, and then you know, a week later you're like, oh, my knee really feels great, and, and that's just a, a more temporary effect of, of the placebo, but then you do other things. You start exercising, you start walking, it brightens your day, you change the way you go about your day, and then yes. if you're exercising again, maybe it helps you sleep better. Yeah. Okay. We, I, so, I, I apologize yeah. to interrupt. We're going to have to take a break, but we're going to come right back and we're going to tell our listeners about your own placebo experience and what we can unfold from that. You've been listening to Psych Up Live. We're here with Melanie Warner. She's the author of both Pandora's Lunchbox and the book we're speaking about today, which is The Magic Feather Effect. The Science of Alternative Medicine and the Surprising Power of Belief. Stay with us. More to come. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Fullick. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment and community for the aftermath, emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. 
A brave heart is anyone with the courage to be of service to others. If you have that courage, then Bravehearts Radio with Brian Reinbold is for you. Even if you aren't yet, you'll want to still tune in to get inspired, create your own story to share, and change your life for the better. Listen to the stories of service and courage shared by amazing guests and your input too. Listen for Brave Hearts Radio, Mondays at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Remember, doing good anywhere does good everywhere. Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts, we'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now, back to Psych Up Live. Welcome back. Welcome back to Psych Up Live. We're here with Melanie Warner. She's the author of The Magic Feather Effect, The Science of Alternative Medicine and the Surprising Power of Belief. And Melanie, early in your book, you describe how you yourself are in the middle or getting engaged as a subject in an experiment on placebo effect and pain. And I I asked you at the break, maybe you could share it with us and your attempt to outwit this experimenter and what exactly happens. Yeah, this was as I, as I was in the middle of researching the placebo effect, and I'd read a ton about it, and I talked to a lot of different researchers, and then I decided that I should go and actually experience it, because it's, I think it's one thing to read about it and think, yeah, 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 okay, what, what is this thing, really, and to actually experience it, and, and I didn't actually expect that it would be all that interesting, you know, honestly. When I went, I went to the University of Maryland, this, this researcher, um, Moana Kalaka, who was, used to work with the, the Italian researcher I was mentioning earlier. Um, she, um, she was kind enough to have me in her lab, and I thought, well, this will, this will be interesting. And it was actually far more revealing and dramatic than I thought it was going to be. She, she hooked me up to um, these pain, these, uh, you know, the heat signals that were coming um, onto my arm. She strapped a box to it and she said, I'm going to send varying signals. First, she just tested my pain sensitivity and, and then she sent varying heat signals and she paired it with, um, on a laptop, she paired it with um, green or red screens. And she said, every time the screen is red, it's going to be, um, you know, fairly on the higher end and when it's green, it's going to be on the lower end. It won't, won't really hurt too much. And when she did that, she, the, the red screen was, was really hot. I mean, it felt like, it wasn't like putting an iron on your skin, but it was, it was significant, you know. didn't burn me, but it seemed like it came close. But it only lasted a couple seconds, and, and so it was fine. Um, and then when it was green, it was just kind of a little bit of like, oh, it's warm, and I would rate it out of a 
pain scale of 1 to 10, I would rate it about like a 2 or a 3, and the higher ones, I'd rate like a 8 or 9. Um, and so I was trying to think the whole time while she was doing this experiment, like I know this is a placebo experiment, but what is he doing? Is he actually varying the heat signals? Um, what's happening? I was trying to think through it. And then on the last, we did a couple rounds of this. And then, but what she actually did on the last round, um, she did vary, she didn't vary the heat, the, the heat signals at all. She sent high amounts of heat, the eight or nine level, um, on her dial or whatever she was putting it at. I think it was like 118 degrees, 115 degrees. Um, she was sending that the entire time, even when the screen was green. But what was I doing as, you know, as I'm looking at the green screen and I gotten used to the lower, um, the lower signal coming on the screen, I rated it as a two or three. So it was coming in at the same high temperature, 115 degrees, but it was a green screen. So my brain had gotten used to the pattern of green, and plus she had told me that as well at the outset. Um, and it was fascinating to me that when she was sending this, this heat that previously was super high and painful, that I rated high, now, just because she varied it, and because she was still showing me the, the green screen, it felt like nothing to me. My, my body did not register. I mean, my body registered, but it, my brain didn't register. So the, mm. the signal was still the same. My brain interpreted it completely differently because of the belief and because of my adjustment to that pattern. And so essentially there was no pain. So it was, it was fascinating, the, the starkness of it to me. So what, do, what could we translate that to say, Melanie? Well, the, the placebo effect is 100% real. Yes. Um, it, just, it just demonstrates what we were talking about earlier, that um, there are these molecules in our brain that can be released based on our expectations and based on our, our belief. And, um, and, that, and then also, what we're also talking about with pain being something that's created in your brain. Mm-hmm. Um, this was all happening in my brain. The signal on my arm, the coming up through my nerves in my arm, hadn't changed. That was, that was the same as always. What was different were things happening between my ears in my brain based on the expectations. And that's, that's the placebo effect right there. It really gives us such uh, an important message about the power uh, we have in terms of our brain and how we can make a dangerous situation or a painful situation less so by different things we do. Yeah. And you saw the green it does. screen. It shows you the... Yeah. You saw yeah, it the does green show you the, the, the power of the mind, absolutely. <clears throat> it's not always simple or easy, just, yes. well, if I believe it, um, my my back pain will go away or my headaches will go away. It's it's rarely that it's that simple. It's a more complex thing. But I think you start with the understanding that there, the power of the mind can be profound. It's just a matter of how do you, how do you get your brain to unlearn pain? How do you do that? It's, it's, there's not always easy answers, um, but I think you have to start with that understanding that it's possible. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's what you mean by we have to start to harness our own healing powers. Yeah. Now, just in terms of time, you talk about the important distinction between illness and disease. What do you mean, Melanie? That was something that first was uh, 
that a, a Harvard psychologist in um, way back in the 1970s, Arthur Kleinman, first discussed and first wrote about in, in scientific journals, and he made a distinction between illness and disease, and he thought that, and, and he still agrees with this, he's still alive, that the, he, he doesn't think it's changed substantially, unfortunately. The, the, medical, the medical industry, the medical profession, doctors, focus too much on just disease. So they just focus on what's changed in the body, what's going on with this organ, what's going on with a person's, um, uh, what, you know, what, what, can, what can we do to change uh, the progression of, of negative change in the body, and they're, they're just focused on that. And they're not focused on the illness, which is the lived experience of mm-hmm. ill health. Wow. It's the lived yeah. experience of how we feel in our body every day in response to the disease that our body might be um, succumbing to. And those, he argued that those two things are equally important, but the medical profession overly focuses just on, on disease at the expense of treating the whole person and treating the experience of, of the disease or what he called illness. And so many really fine physicians are so frustrated by the little bit of time they have with patients because you're really talking about the importance of someone bearing witness to the lived illness, to living with the particular pain. And it makes such a difference when people are in a healing encounter where they feel someone gets it. Yeah, and I think a lot of doctors do want to focus on... Mm -hmm people's emotions, um, their, what else is going on in their life, areas, areas of stress. Um, they do want to hear about how patients feel in, in their body, and they, they do want to look at them as a person, but they, are, they, they can't always do that in a 15-minute right, right. interaction. And when you have a bajillion patient, patients a day, sometimes it's like right. upwards of 20, four, it's right, very, very ten. difficult to do that. Yes, so, in the interest of time, we're almost out of time. You, This is such a terrific book. I really want to encourage all listeners. I could not put it down. I think you'll find it fascinating. Um, what's a take-home message we could share with our listeners, Melanie? I think to remember that the, that the mind is, is just as important as the body in, in addressing health. And to when when people are seeking out help and healthcare providers, I think it's important to to look at someone who to find someone if you can who understands that, who will treat the mind as well as the body. And a lot of times, sometimes that um, that sends people to alternative practitioners because they have they have more time to spend with patients and they they are a bit more experienced in how to be healers. And that's. Uh, why I think you see people turning to alternative medicine so much. Um, mm. But try and seek that out and try and find find people who can help you in that journey. So, uh, Melanie, I want to thank you for your sharing with us your thorough and fascinating journey into alternative medicine. And it really underscores our ability to self-heal if we harness some of the things you've shared and, and what you've shared on the show, both in the book and in the show. Melanie, how can people find your books um, what's the best uh, way to get to your books? Yeah, I have a website, melaniearwarner.com, or um, on Amazon, Barnes & Noble as well. 
I want to thank my listeners. Remember, you can hear this in any prior show as a podcast on my host, my host site, my website, and on your iPhones, as iTunes, Stitcher, anywhere you can hear a podcast. We're there, Google Play, iHeart. Remember to drop me a comment or a question at radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Until next week, everyone out there, please be safe, take precautions, thanks, and be listening. Thank you for tuning in to Psych Up Live. Please join Dr. Suzanne Phillips for another edition of our programming next Thursday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Until then, be well and be listening. 